Welcome to the Reporters Roundtable. I'm your host, Peter Zalewski. If you're listening to this podcast, that is means it's a Wednesday. Every Wednesday, bring together current and former journalists. I'm going to talk about some of the biggest headlines that have occurred within the last week and try to cut through uh, the headlines and understand really what is the effect or the impact of these stories. Now, they're all going to have to do with the economy and or the real estate market. And we look for straight talk and salty language, i.e. cursing is acceptable. During the podcast, um, uh, make sure you hang around for the segment where I ask all the journalists to go ahead and make a prediction. And also, too, there's a segment where we focus on comments that are submitted by the listeners. So if you out there, uh, you want to send us a comment, you want to make a uh, criticism, a compliment, you want to make a statement, ask a question, Send it to inquiry at condovultures.com, I-N-Q-U-I-R-Y at condovultures.com. So let me introduce our panelists this week. First and foremost, we have a gentleman who used to work over the South Florida Business Journal where he wrote about white collar crime and publicly traded companies based in South Florida. Right now, he is uh, doing public relations and marketing for his own firm related to health and wellness. That's somebody called John Fackler. What's going on, Mr. Fackler? Well, um, not doing too bad. Just need to make a little correction there. It's health and wellness business and entrepreneurs. Um, the business of health and wellness. My bad. Yes, thank you, thank you. I notice I have to correct you every every podcast, but that's uh, just want to make sure that's understood. But yeah, it's great to be aboard. Um, and uh, another week of the People's Podcast. The People's Podcast. Wow, you're giving it a socialistic sense. I like that. Well, listen, well, listen we we got, we got a lot of liberals on this show. We need to get some more conservatives. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, who else do we have? We have a gentleman, a journalist for north of 25 years, primarily in the state of Florida. He did a gig over at the Tampa Tribune where he wrote about finance and real estate and economic development. Right now he does public relations and marketing for his own firm called Gruce Communications. That's Jean Gruce. What's going on, Jean? Hey, Peter. It's great to be back on your show. Love having you. Love to get your insight. The yin and the yang. Your outlook on things versus Mr. Fackler's outlook always makes it entertaining. Speaking of outlook, um, who else do we have this week? We have a gentleman who's uh, been an investigative reporter for north of 20 years. You'll see his work in The Real Deal down here in Miami. You'll also see him in The Daily Beast as well as other publications. That's Francisco Alvarado. What's going on, Francisco? I'm doing great, Peter. Thank you for having me on again. Man, we love your insight, and more importantly, we love your predictions. You tend to predict things uh, and nail them, as does Jean. Uh, the other panelists, uh, not so much. So, you know, two out of three is not bad. If this was baseball, uh, <laughs> it would be fantastic. <laughs> Appreciate the vote of confidence. Francisco, since the last time we spoke, what have you been up to? Have you gotten have you gotten vaccinated? Is that something you want to do? Yeah. Uh, yes, what are you I'm, hearing? Uh, what, yeah, what, what, uh, what's going on? I'm fully vaccinated. Uh, I got my second Moderna, Moderna dose uh, on May 4th, I believe. What was it? Let me see. It was the first Saturday of May. I got my second okay. dose. Uh, so nice. it's actually May 1st, May 1st. Um, and, um, and, you know, and went and traveled for the first time uh, last week uh, for a little bit. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Do tell. Went to Puerto Rico. Went to Puerto Rico. And, uh, nice. yeah, yeah, you know, um, and, um, and people are traveling, man. People are, people are, <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, uh, Miami International on the way out was, was jam packed. And then, um, the, the airport in San Juan, Luis Munoz was, was something else, let me tell you, uh, coming back. Uh, but, um, but yeah, no, it was, a uh, 
quite an adventure. And, um, you know, but, you know, I, I certainly felt safe, you know, um, you know, having both my doses before I traveled. You know, speaking of travel, Jean, you're, you're, you're looking at taking a trip at the end of, um, at the end of this month, beginning of next month. Any, anything you can share with the, uh, the audience about uh, what you might be doing? Yeah, I'm going to Mexico. Uh, I mean, um, yeah, I'm fully vaccinated and, um, going to Mexico for five or six days of uh, scuba diving in the Yucatan. So I'm ready to go. Nice. Wow. Any, uh, obviously Puerto Rico is part of the United States. Mexico is not any kind of quarantining or other things you're going to yeah. deal with at least um, at this point, John, when you, when you actually get on the ground in uh, Mexico. Yeah, so there's no problem getting into Mexico, but to come back, I'm going to have to take a, a, a test, a COVID test to come back to the U.S. Uh, within three days. But I, I think all the hotels there offer the test. So, I mean, I, I feel pretty confident. I am I am going to be careful while I'm there. I mean, I'm, yep. I'm you know, uh, but, um, you know, I'm going to be spending time on the water and in the water. So I'm not too concerned, uh, but, but I will be careful. And, um, yeah. I uh, don't want to bring anything back with me that, that I don't want to bring back. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. And uh, gentlemen, Francisco, as well as Jean, um, what can you tell us about pricing? Um, uh, I don't know if you've been to those places before, and if you have, how, does t- how did uh, the current pricing compare to maybe prices you paid previously for similar types of trips? Um. It was relative, I would say it was a little bit cheaper than um, uh, other flights I've taken to San Juan. Um, you know, I think it was, you know, um, definitely, you know, like, I mean, round trip, it was definitely, uh, you know, about 200 bucks. Uh, oh, that's not bad. And I was, right, is Puerto Rico like, normally like 300? That, and I was like, you know, like, and that was about, you know, like two, you know, two weeks in advance. Mm-hmm. You know, purchasing them two weeks in advance. Uh, but like, you know, like um, I think, like yeah, I mean, like I mean, I I thought it was you know, like I mean, definitely like you know, uh, you know, um, less expensive than other times, even the hotel accommodations. Um, and compared to like you know, to the current hotel prices here in in Miami, I mean, it's mm-hmm. definitely a bargain. It's definitely yeah. a bargain right now yeah. in Puerto Rico. Interesting, interesting. And John, what about you? Uh, what about a flight to Mexico? Yeah, so so when I planned this, it was back in um, back in February. So I got fantastic deals. I mean, <laughs> you know, we were still I, we were still we still didn't know like quite you know what the situation was going to be and and et cetera et cetera. So I mean, yeah, it's um, yeah significantly cheaper. I I think. Um, I mean, all in all, I, I would estimate, you know, maybe uh, maybe forty percent off of what I would have paid uh, in previous years, probably. Like, that's just a wild guess, but I mean, it's a great deal. Yeah. Wow, that's fantastic. Good for you. I can't wait to hear about um, how it goes, but uh, I'm sure you'll be giving us uh, intel once you get back. Uh, uh, you, so you're taking a trip at the end of uh, May, and then you're coming back in in sometime. Yeah, in, over in, Memorial Day. June, Actually, so. it's. It's over Memorial Day weekend, so I'll be interested to see what the airport's like. Uh, Francisco, you said it was jam-packed, um, and was it was it a hassle going through TSA? What was the deal there? Um, uh, yeah, I would say in both instances. I mean, if you get, if you can get TSA pre-check, uh, I would say you know, go for it. Yeah, it's just kind of yeah, like, that's the way to go. Yeah, I mean, it, 
it was both, I mean, both ways. I mean, it was just kind of like, you know, I mean, especially in San Juan. In San Juan, it was kind of like, it was like, it was just insane the, the amount of like, how long you had to like, where where the line started, uh, and you know how long it took you to to get through it. You know, it was about I would say about forty five minutes to an hour. Wow. Whoa. Yeah. 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 So it was uh, so yeah. So I mean um, you know um. As far as Miami goes, I think it was, you know, a little less, you know, it wasn't as long, I think. Um, it was just, you know, what I did notice, I did notice more there was more people in in the Miami International Airport who, you know, for whatever reason, like, you know, weren't wearing masks, and then they would just kind of, like, cause a delay because, you know, TSA is not letting them through if they're not wearing their masks. Uh, mm. But in Puerto Rico, it was more like, you know, people were, like, I guess, you know, because I guess in Puerto Rico it's more strict. The mask mandate. Um, so okay. you know, you, you can see that people are. You know, there's more people like you know, wearing masks. You know, without having being told to wear it. Well, well, guys. Um, last week, uh, the CDC made an announcement: if you're double vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask indoors, and you also don't have to wear one um, uh, outside, obviously. And now they're putting the earnest on those who are not vaccinated to get vaccinated. Otherwise, they're taking a chance. And the the logic, and I'm not a scientist, but the logic is basically anybody who wants a shot, they can get a shot. The shots are out there. If you want to take a chance and not get vaccinated, that's going to be on you. Um, you guys have any thoughts uh, about that? And then after that, we're going to just kind of go over the COVID numbers in terms of what the latest numbers are. So anybody have any thoughts about the CDC order? Uh, that, uh, you know, effectively now you don't need to wear a mask uh, in, well, for the most part, in the United States. Well, they, they require them inside federal buildings like the airport. So you still have to wear okay. your mask in the airport. Yeah. That's right. And you, still have to centers. and you still have to wear it on the plane. I mean, I don't know if that's going to change, you know, this week. Um, but, you know, I flew back on Friday. I mean, when did that order come out? When did that guidance come out? Was that Thursday? I think it was or? Thursday. Yes. Yes. Okay, yeah. So I flew back Friday, and um, and they were still, you know, the airline was still requiring everyone to wear a mask uh, on the plane, you know, and, okay. um, and and the captain, you know, you know, you know, gave her, you know, let everybody know that that threat, you know, like if you don't comply, you know, we could we could ban you for life. Wow. Wow. <laughs> That's interesting. Hey, so. uh, John, you want to make a comment or anything, or? Mr. Factor, you want to make a comment yeah, about I, the uh, CDC I, I, lifting of the ban or of the mask order? Yeah, because to me, and, and there's been a lot of blowback, and it's um, uh, to me, it's more confusing than ever. I'm, I mean, I'm confused naturally, but this, this is a lot. I mean, a lot of retail establishments um, are still, um, you know, asking for the mask. So a few of them have, have come out and say you don't have to. So I think it's just adding to the confusion. Like people. You know, they don't know whether to go out with the mask or not. I mean, it's. Um, I just hope there's more clarification from, and the CDC helps with that clarification. But you know, with the state being the ones to make the decisions here, and the retail establishments, uh, which is fine. Um, it just seems like to me like there hasn't been a, a lifting of the ban, at least right now. Mm. Okay. Yeah, I think there's a lot of confusion out there, for sure. Uh, John, you want to make a comment about the mask um, uh, order of the Center for Disease Control, the CDC? Uh, not really. I mean, I, yeah, I, you guys have pretty much covered it. 
Okay, okay. So, guys, let me let me give you the statistics on the COVID numbers, and I don't know how regularly we're going to do this from this point forward. Now that it appears as if uh, COVID seems to be under control, at least at this point, um, uh, according to the Center for Disease Control as well as President Biden. So, so what we got now, and we're we're recording this on Monday, the seventeenth of May. This podcast will come out on Wednesday, the nineteenth of May. So, according to the Florida Secretary of Health, the COVID nineteen dashboard, which anybody can go to the website, they can look it up. Um, these are the official numbers. Whether you agree or disagree, there's been some uh, 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 concerns raised about the legitimacy of the numbers because of omission, but. These are the numbers. We're looking at just under 2.3 million confirmed cases, 2.3 million confirmed cases, 36,133 people in Florida died, and hospitalizations, 93,150 thus far. Now, how does it break down for the Tri-County, South Florida area of Miami-Dade, Broward, Palm Beach County? 872,200 cases in South Florida with 488,800 Miami-Dade, 239-300 239-300 in Broward, and 144-200 in Palm Beach County. On the death count, again, 36,133 um, in Florida. Uh, uh, based in South Florida, 12,200 people have died with 6,300 Miami-Dade, 3,000 in Broward, and 2,800 in Palm Beach. And then finally, hospitalizations, 93,200 roughly. 30, 000, uh, 31,000 people in South Florida have been hospitalized. 13,700 in Miami-Dade, 10,300 in Broward, and 6,900 in Palm Beach County. Now, I will tell you, week over week, if I look at the number of confirmed cases, it looks as if we've only had about 20,000 additional confirmed cases. So, obviously, this uh, this vaccine um, uh, is having an effect in terms of on the death count. Uh, again, we came in 30, 36,200 this week. Last week, we were at 35,800. So you do have people, uh, you know, who are continuing to die, but it looks like the number of cases is is going down. So anybody might want to make a final thought before we go ahead and we take a commercial break, and then the other side break, we're going to get into the stories. Any, any thoughts about the COVID numbers? Uh, they look great, man. It sounds, it sounds great. This is Frank over here, Francisco. I'm just saying this is a great positive sign. I think we should, you know... We should, you know, be thankful that we're that this is where we're headed, and you know that that it stays that way, you know. Um, yeah. And the, you know that we're that we're definitely around the corner on, on this pandemic. Fantastic. Um, and on that good news, we'll go ahead. We'll take a commercial break. On the other side of the break, we're going to get into uh, travel this summer. We're going to talk about some. Uh, kind of where people are going, and you, you heard a little bit about um, uh, some of the trips that our panelists have taken. We're also going to talk about a beloved watering hole in downtown Miami that's reopened after the pandemic, and then we're going to get into that uh, constant uh, discussion, is Miami suitable for a tech hub? So stay tuned. We'll catch up on the other side of the break. This is Peter Zalewski of the Condo Vultures podcast. Before I started doing these podcasts, I basically was in the business of being a licensed real estate broker a contributing um, columnist for the Miami Herald, as well as the Miami Real Deal, but also expert witness work in consulting. So if you are looking for an expert witness or if you're looking for consulting services, a straight talk perspective as to what's going on in a particular marketplace, a building, or what happened previously for whatever your situation is, whether you are an attorney, whether you are an institutional fund looking to invest, or whether you're a lender who's trying to come up with some sort of strategy and approach uh, for your lending committee going forward, I just might be able to help you. To get a hold of me, please uh, reach out to Peter at condovultures.com. That's Peter at condovultures.com. Or give me a call to the office at 305-865-5859, 305-865-5859. If you're enjoying the Condo Vultures podcast, 
and you want more information, but this information in the written word as well as charts, why not sign up for the South Florida Distressed Market Intelligence Report? To do so, go to condovulturesrealty.com. Slightly below the main banner and logo, you will see a sign-up box. It's called the South Florida Distressed Market Intelligence Report sign-up. Simply enter your email address, hit subscribe, and lo and behold, every week you'll be sent a newsletter giving you the latest updates on what's going on in the distressed market in South Florida. Welcome back. I'm Peter Zalewski, your host. We're going to get into our first three stories that I handpicked from a variety of publications. I've sent them over to the journalists, and I asked them to read through them and give us their straight talk. The idea is to try to understand what these headlines mean uh, for you, the listener, in terms of impact on the local economy as well as the real estate market. So story number one, we're going to start off with Francisco. It's coming out of the Washington Post. And let me sort of set the scene before we get into it. During the pandemic, and then we all would recognize that it's sort of coming to a, uh, hopefully a conclusion, at least in the media, uh, the short term, not to say there's not going to be various or any other factors that, you know, uh, force other issues, but it looks like things are starting to get under control. But um, during the pandemic, Florida was open and was very rogue about um, uh, the mask issue. We all know the political ramifications of that. But what we found is a lot of people hightailed it to Florida simply because it was open and you had the great weather for the most part and people had an ability to sort of ride out the pandemic. They could ride it out here in Florida because a lot of employers let people work from home, if you will. So that's sort of the background. Let's get into the story, Francisco. Again, Washington Post headline, summer trips all booked up. Don't forget about the big city. Subhead beach houses are booked. Rental cars are scarce. Enter the big city escape. And I'll read you the first couple of graphs. This is written by um, Hannah Sampson, who used to write over at the Miami Herald before she went up uh, and started working for the Post. Story, the summer beach houses have been booked for months. Rental car prices are through the roof. If you can even find one, national parks are as hot as ever. Much of the rest of the world is reopening slowly with, and with considerable hassle. With 54% of adults in the United States fully vaccinated, more than 58% with at least one dose, the number of travelers is climbing in the country. According to a forecast released Tuesday by AAA, they expect more than 37 million people to travel over Memorial Day weekend, which is the end of May, a sharp increase from last year that the group calls, in quotes, a strong indicator for summer. Francisco, what do you make of that? You already took to the road before Memorial Day. We already discussed what's been going on. What do you make of this, and what do you make of the fact that South Florida has dominated tourism during the pandemic? Is it still going to be the uh, the big dog, or now suddenly are people going to go elsewhere because there's a delusion in the market? What's, uh, what's a you? Um, well, I mean, I think, you know, obviously we're still going to be riding this wave till after, like, you know, till the, at least Memorial Day, because, I mean, we have the week, this weekend coming up is, you know, the the food and wine festival, uh, which is going to bring people. It's going to make, you know, you know, we're going to have, we're going to be overbooked, I think, as usual. Um, and then Memorial Day weekend is Memorial Day weekend. I think where we're, we're start seeing, so I, I believe we'll start seeing, you know, a tail off come June, July, you know, in the really hot summer months and storm season and the threat of hurricanes, um, you know, but uh, I mean, like, I mean, I don't know, like, if we're going to see, like, like, you know, I still think it's going to be relatively um, busy down here. I mean, I don't see it, you know, becoming a place for us, like, you know, where everybody's going to, like, flee to the to all these other places. I mean, um, uh, it's just kind of like, you know, like a, uh, I guess a byproduct of, you know, the pandemic is that, you know, people can just do, you know, we're still the least locked down place in America. And I think that's going to be like, 
you know, keep people, some people here, but I also don't think it's going to be like, you know, like how we've seen it, you know, the, these will, you know, the first part of 2021. Um, but, um, but I could be wrong. I mean, like, you know, I mean, I mean, you look at the social media for places like live Miami and the new place that opened the good time hotel. And it's like, man, you know, it's like the the party is the party is nonstop, and it's and it's you know shoulder to shoulder. Nice, nice, um, John. I want to ask you. Uh, you know, Francisco. Um, uh, he made some very interesting points. I want to ask you, John. Is this the peak? Is this as good as it's going to get in terms of tourism in South Florida as well as Florida? Again, because we were open, no one else is open. Now suddenly you have, according to the story, you got Chicago going on the offensive. You got New Orleans. You have even California looking at the middle of June of opening things up. You got New York City. Is this as good as it's going to get for those in the tourism industry in um, in Florida, based on the fact there's all kinds of options now, and Florida's not the only game in town anymore for a domestic traveler who's vaccinated. No, no. I think it's going to be even better. I think we're going to have like a kick-ass summer. And the reason I say that is because Europe is still shut, closed off to tourists pretty much. Um, the Caribbean, many, many islands are still off limits to tourists. Um, and New York City, I mean, they're not even going to restart Broadway until September. So, I mean, they, they've, I mean, they're going to lose the entire summer in New York City because they're not reopening Broadway at all until the fall. So, I mean, and cities, you know, I mean, cities, big cities like Chicago and New York, I mean, they have a pretty bad rap right now for crime and safety and all kinds of those issues. And so, and I think Americans have made their plans. I mean, look, we're, we're almost in June I mean, mm-hmm. they've made their vacation. They've made their vacation plans, and they're coming to Florida. I mean, you look at the hotel rates this summer. I mean, it's it's crazy. The rates that the hotels are able to charge. I mean, it's really significant. I mean, we haven't seen these kinds of rates, you know, in several years. And um, I think it just shows that the demand for hotel rooms and for summer vacation in Florida is going to be. It's going to be a fantastic summer. I, I uh, you know, barring, barring a nasty hurricane or something like that. I mean, the outlook is just stupendous. I, I really think it's going to be awesome. No, 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 Jean, just to follow up on that. Um, so, so maybe we haven't seen the peak in terms of visitors. Have we seen the peak in terms of pricing? Grant, a lot of people got cash in their pocket. They haven't been able to burn it, piss it away on things other than playing the stock market, buying Dogecoin. Bitcoin and maybe Amazon and, and Uber Eats, um, but they're going to start to burn through that. We we as a culture we don't seem to a lot of save a lot of money, and if you got money, let's why not burn it? So, do you think this is the peak maybe in hotel prices, where basically uh, you still think it's going to be strong, and hotels uh, they can probably work very well to take the money from these these end users? So, so what, what what can you tell us about pricing as well as that 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 uh, billfold that some of these um, uh, uh, tourists? might have in terms of cash and that they can burn well i mean it all depends on the demand right so i mean i think the demand is going to be super strong because once again you know americans who who have the disposable income to go to to go to europe to go to the caribbean to go to um you know anywhere else in the world like asia i mean no one's going to asia um no one's going to the caribbean no one's going to europe um 
where else can you go? And so the demand yeah. is pretty significant. And you have like X number of hotel rooms and these hoteliers are masters at pricing and they can gauge demand, you know, on a daily, hourly basis. Um, and with the technology that they've got now, and I think, I mean, rates are already, you know, through the roof uh, relative to, you know, the past year, of course. But I mean, I think they, I think there's room to go. And the hoteliers, let me tell you, I mean, they, they got, they got some um, bills to pay because, um, you know, they borrowed a lot of money to stay, stay open through this pandemic. And they, you know, they were near empty for so long. I mean, they got a lot of ground to make up and believe me, they're going to make it up. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Somebody who hasn't and doesn't necessarily like to travel, but he's got a lot of cash to burn and he does like to uh, go out and have a a cocktail here and there. That's going to be John Fackler. We're going to go to John with our next story. John, this is coming from WPLG. It is the ABC affiliate down here. It's Channel 10. Their website is local10.com. Here we go, Mr. Fackler. The beloved downtown Miami hole-in-the-wall speakeasy reopens over one year later. Subhead regulars, fair not. The corner in downtown Miami is back. I'll read you the first couple graphs, uh, Mr. Fackler, and then I want you to comment. Just west of Marisa A. Foray Park, also known as Bicentennial Park. I think it's actually known as Museum Park, but Bicentennial Park is way before. But anyways, regardless, um, in downtown Miami was once a dark and moody watering hole. A local's only good good food and whiskey love and speakeasy and bar for those looking for a solid happy hour or for 5 a.m. drinks in the heart of downtown Miami. However, in March of 2020, everything for that watering hole changed when the COVID-19 pandemic struck the Magic City forcing bars, especially ones with no outdoor seating options, to temporarily shut their doors, some even for good. One of those establishments that temporarily shut down was The Corner, which announced they were closing on March 16, 2020, until further notice. However, after closing for over a year, they have reopened their doors once more to the relief of the regular patrons. Mr. Factor, you're a regular patron of that uh, establishment. You've been going there for quite some time. What's the symbolism involved with uh, the corner opening, and what do you make of the fact that it took them so damn long to open when other other pubs uh, and, and bars and speakeasies and you name it have been operating for quite some time? What say you, Mr. Peckler? Well, uh, really hard to gauge that since this um, uh, this news story is more of a promotional piece. Um, not unlike the... Um, Reporters Roundtable podcast. We've been talking about them for quite a while, haven't we? Um, <laughs> and, and what you mean by that is there is a condo that has been proposed, a condo yeah. in a hotel uh, that's going to be named the 11 after the uh, the cabaret. Do not call it a strip joint. The cabaret called the 11, which will be right across the street. So uh, yeah. go ahead, Mr. Beckler. And I think it will be interesting to see if that ever um, uh, leaves the ground, uh, that proposed uh, uh, condo tower if they can actually buy out um, any of the businesses that may be, you know, nearby. Uh, they could be, you know, uh, bought out and redeveloped that whole block. I just don't see the, uh, the corner um, lounge being uh, um, so close to this new high-end uh, uh, condo tower. Um, you know, it's just, um, I mean, let, the place, just like the article says, it's a real dive bar. I mean, the place is... Uh, um, it's got its own character to it. Um, it's definitely a locals bar. So, um, you know, it's great that it was opened. I don't think there's any, you know, hidden reason why it opened late while other pubs opened first. Um, maybe it was just trying to get its sea legs. 
Um, but, um, no, I mean, listen, I haven't been there in quite a while, so, you know, who am I to judge? But um, let me tell you, it, it, when it comes to uh, pub crawling in the city, it's one of the last pubs we usually go to. It's open like 4 o'clock, and um, we'll hit it 5 on the way home. Yeah, 5 a.m. during the week, 8 a.m. Yeah. on the weekend. Yeah, yeah. And the, it was interesting in the story. They mentioned they actually open early at 8 o'clock in the morning. Who the hell's drinking at 8 o'clock in the morning? I don't know how, how You've much, been there. How much, I can say <laughs> well, you've I, been there at 8 a.m. when the sun has come up. I have been at least once or twice, I will admit. But um, <laughs> I, don't, I, just, I just don't remember the details too well. You know what I mean? Francisco, um, um, I'm assuming you've been to the corner, and and I, I just wonder, is the corner going to have the same shtick um, in the post-pandemic that it had pre-pandemic, given the fact that a condo tower is slated to go up right across the street? Uh, anybody who hasn't heard in our previous podcast, uh, we had Catherine Kalergis, who actually wrote one of the stories. They sold somewhere in the vicinity of 340 units in 60 days at an average price of $1,100 a square foot. So obviously that area is in play. It's highly desirable. The corner was known for being a cheap dive bar, which was frequented by homeless people, by musicians, by eccentrics, by just the whole cast and crew. Uh, strippers, uh, well, I'm sorry, cabaret dancers from across the street at 11. What, 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 what do you think the, the corner is going to be in the post-pandemic world, uh, Francisco, and as well as that area? I mean, it's still going to be what it is. I mean, it's going to be the, the dive bar until, I mean, I mean, we, we, you know, until, until that counter, until that counter, condo tower is completed and there's actual people in there. I mean, we really I mean it's going to, it's going to, that area is still going to be the, what it is. I mean, it's not, I mean, it's not going to, it's not going to be cleaned up anytime soon. So I mean, but, you know, like let us let us let us enjoy the corner while it's still there, and you know we can worry about like you know um, gentrification of that area of Miami in about you know two three years when uh, those buildings are actually uh, completed and um, when people are moving in. Now, now M- M- Miami and South Florida, they it, it, uh, Francisco, it has a it has a party atmosphere. Um, I finished the book. Uh, Jean had recommended. I finished the book, and I'd recommend it to every single person who listens to the podcast. It's called Bubble in the Sun, and in going through Bubble in the Sun is based on the 1920s land boom in Florida and what went on. It became clear to Carl Fisher as well as some of the others down here the way you position Miami for out of state money for out of town money was to offer the party scene um, or, or sort of the, the fringe type of stuff versus Palm Beach, which was more stodgy and, and sort of conservative. So that's the way it was sort of, sort of always positioned. So I, I, I guess what I'm, I'm going to ask you, Francisco, is we lost a number of bars, uh, establishments that have been known for quite some time. We've lost them over the course of this um, um, uh, condo boom as well as this pandemic. But now some of them are starting to resurface, and it makes me think of John Martins, who announced uh, or they announced uh, yeah. they were going to they were going to restart that. We have we have Tobacco Road, um, where they they set up a pop up sort of related to that. How much uh, Francisco is the pub or the bar culture? Uh, do you think to the overall culture of Miami and the lifestyle um, that a lot of people um, you know experience down here? Um, well, I mean. I mean, I think it is ingrained. I mean, it all depends, you know, like what kind of bar culture you're talking about. I mean, you know, there's, you know, there's the Live Miami crowd. And, then, you know, and then you have the, uh, you know, the, the Mac, Mac Deuce crowd. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, and then, you know, there's like, and then like, you know, there's all, I guess I remember, I mean, like, you know, we're, you know, we, we tend to think that, you know, 
you know, sometimes, you know, Miami's uh, limited to just, um, you know, Miami Beach, downtown Miami, Brickell, Wynwood, the design district, Upper East Side. But, you know, there's still North Miami, North Miami Beach, Kendall, yep. Doral, yep. and all those places, you know, have a bar culture. I mean, it's just kind of like, it's just my, you know, like Miami's just a city where people are going to go out and they're going to, you know, and they're used to going out after 11 o'clock at night. So, yep. and and you can go anywhere in this city, uh, sorry, this county, uh, and even up in, you know, even in the tri-county area. And um, you find, you know, like, you know, hole-in-the-wall culture uh, pretty much, you know, anywhere, if you think about it. You know, and then there's yeah. the whole culture of the breweries. You know, there's, um, in, you know, like before, you know, like they were just, you know, they were just, you know, known, known in Wynwood. Um, but now if you go to Hialeah, there's, I think they got a couple breweries there. Um, even um, like in areas of like close to West Miami, I'm, I think I've see, I'm seeing a new one pop up around that area. So, so yeah, I mean, again, you know, like the, I mean, you know, we're 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 known for fun in the sun. So, uh, I think that that that's definitely part of the, you know, the 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 atmosphere. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then on that note, talking about fun in the sun. John, let's go to you with story number three. This is coming out of Bloomberg. Coming out of Bloomberg. It's an opinion piece. Here's a headline, and I'll read you the first couple graphs. Headline, Miami as a tech hub, question mark. It's lacking one critical subculture. Subhead is Miami's fun, New York's exciting, but Northern California has deep structural advantages. And before I read you the first couple graphs, John, let me just remind the listener, we've heard a lot during the pandemic that uh, employees could work wherever they wanted uh, due to uh, the pandemic. Therefore, a lot of people picked up and they headed down to South Florida. We then had a number of um, hedge funds as well as tech companies that were supposedly moving their operations to South Florida. So here's, here's what the piece says. It says, as traveling has become safer over the last few months, I've been checking in on the geographic future of American technology. In each place I visited, Miami, New York, and San Francisco, I saw some considerable surprises in Miami and Miami Beach. I had a wonderful time. But I don't see the area as a new and budding tech center. Many tech entrepreneurs moved there during the earlier phases of the pandemic, but many have since left. Perhaps the region is more of a place to spend tech money than to earn tech money. Sean, is that a fair assessment, or is this some sort of um, uh, 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 elitist who uh, looks down on South Florida, looks down on Miami for whatever the factor may be? What what's you, Sean? Does this guy know what he's talking about, or is he uh, is he is, is he off? Well, well, you have to remember that like tech people are highly mobile. So, in other words, they could move here to Miami for six months and decide, you know what, they don't like it so much here. And they're going to go to San Francisco or Austin or Boston or New York and, you know, and then move on to the next one. So I think what we're seeing is a lot of people that came here in the last six months were really remote, remote workers and and they can pick up and go. And they signed a lot of them signed short term leases. Um, they're here for three months or six months checking things out. And, and the fact of the matter is, is that. You know, they want to be there. They want to, you know, be where other tech people are. So, you know, Miami traditionally has not been, you know, a big tech hub. So, you know, if you want to hang out with tech people, I mean, you got to be where they are, which is they're still in Silicon Valley. And, you know, one, one of the big one of the big drawbacks of South Florida and I, I'm not knocking on, on the efforts to track tech. And I think. I think Miami's had some success attracting technology companies, but the real challenge here is the university system is not 
prepared uh, to back up tech people like say Silicon Valley, where you have where you have Stanford University and the University of California system is like super geared towards technology. And the same is true for Boston and and University of Texas in Austin. I mean, these are huge research technology focused universities, and we simply don't have that here. So we don't have that sort of, you know, um, that that infrastructure that's needed to have have the support for tech people and to attract tech people and to attract the kind of research and innovation and development that the universities are like a key part of this. And so, you know, I think like once tech people get here, they're like, yeah, they have fun for three, six months and party and all that's a great place to be, but they want to be where other tech people are and they want to be where the innovation happens. And it's really happening, you know, at the university level and here it's just not happening. Got it, got it, got it. Mr. Factor, you, you got to Miami in the 80s, so uh, I just want to let the listener know that. Let me read a couple of graphs, and I'm going to ask you to comment. The positives for Southern California, Florida, are clear. It's a major crossroads with significant connections to Latin America and the Caribbean. It's a fun place to live. Miami Mayor Francis X. Suarez, he's pro-tech, and there's no state income tax. Haven't we heard all this before, is what I said. <laughs> Let me continue, Mr. Fackler. Yes, that's not enough. Miami does not have a top-tier university, much like John just said. And the city does not have much of what I would call, quote, nerd culture. The city's first language is arguably Spanish, but the tech world is mostly English. And its current ties to Asia are more important than possible future connections to Latin America. Mr. Fackler, um, again, this guy got it right, or is, is he underestimating the power of uh, Miami, South Florida, as well as Latin America and the Caribbean? What say you? I, I thought I thought his comments were were spot on. Actually, um, you know, it's um, uh, there's not really you know it's it's an English first uh, technology is definitely English first and not. Um, you know, and the, they made the comments, which was kind of a snide comment. I thought that you know Miami is more of Spanish first, but in the bigger scope of things, I think one of the attractors uh, of people coming here, uh, of technology uh, uh, individuals and companies, was the price of real estate. They figured that it would be cheaper. Obviously, San Francisco, Silicon Valley real estate prices are through the roof. They're probably the most expensive in the country. But with the move to uh, work from home, the shift to work from home, suddenly that becomes a moot point because, you know, people will be uh, apt more to stay in San Francisco area if they can work from home and not have to worry about, um, uh, you know, paying uh, higher real estate prices or whatever. Uh, so I, I think that was a, something that was, was pointed out in the story. Uh, I think they were talking more about commercial space in that situation. You know, why would companies move here? Uh, when people are working from home and they cut, they can cut back on their commercial space in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, great point. Um, guys, let's go ahead. We'll take a break. On the other side of the break, we're going to get into three additional stories, including one uh, group is having serious buyer remorse about getting into those single-family houses that they purchased. We're also going to have another fantastic story written by Francisco, which has to deal with someone who's been banned. Uh, from a high-profile condo and hotel over in Miami Beach. And then finally, we're going to talk about um, uh, home buyers and what, how high is their confidence level in terms of going forward. So stay tuned. We'll catch up with you on the other side of the break. After a one-year hiatus due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we're bringing back the condo correction tours. I'm Peter Zalewski. 
the host of this podcast. I'm also the one who will be leading these tours. These are three-hour tours where we go to a particular neighborhood. We walk the neighborhood. We talk about market conditions. We look and talk about buildings. We also talk about what's going on in those particular buildings. Everyone who attends the tour, uh, they're given a handout talking about that. what's the current state of that particular market from a buyer as well as a seller perspective. It's real heavy on the information in terms of the handout, but it's also really uh, interesting and insightful based on the stories behind the buildings and how they are performing. So I encourage you. If you're in the market for a condominium, if you're trying to work to get listings of a condominium, this is probably a tour that you want to uh, take. It's straight talk, much like our podcast, and chances are you're going to enjoy it. You're probably going to want to attend all of the tours going forward. To get a schedule of our upcoming tours, please go to condovultures.eventbrite.com. Again, condovultures.eventbrite.com. Welcome back to the Reporters Roundtable. I'm Peter Zalewski. We're talking about some of the biggest headlines, at least uh, in my opinion, that have occurred within the last week that could have an impact on the local economy as well as um, the real estate market. So for story number four, we're going to start off with Mr. Fackler, John Fackler. This is coming out of bank rate, John. Headline, nearly two-thirds of millennials have new home buyers regrets, according to a survey. Read you the first couple of graphs. In today's highly competitive real estate market, it's all too common for buyers to rush into a deal that doesn't fit their budget or suit their needs. Millennials, in particular, have the most regret after buying a home, according to a new bank rate survey. Buyers' regrets are even more of a factor in the pandemic, with sight-unseen offers and contingencies waived to win the bid. The survey highlights some of the most common regrets new homeowners have, ha- have and which demographic groups are most likely to have them. That desperation to land a uh, home leads some buyers to settle for properties that aren't, aren't quite right for them. Home buyers regret broadly fell into two major categories, financial and physical. In general, a survey found that the older the buyer, the less likely they were to have misgivings about their purchase after the fact. In all, 64% of millennial home buyers, which are aged 25 to 40, have some regrets about their purchase compared to just 33% of baby boomers buyers, which are 57 and higher. Um, Mr. Fackler, as a baby boomer, what say you about this uh, re- regret uh, and remorse on behalf of millennials? And what about the baby boomers, the fellow baby boomers, who say, uh, you know, it's not that big of a deal? What, what say you? Well, I thought that was a striking statistic. That's the one thing that really, you know, hit me on the story when I read it. Um, that it's more than double as far as the, um, um, you know, lack of confidence uh, from the millennials versus the baby boomers. That's a that's a huge number, but I think the other issue you have to look at is a lot of the baby boomer purchases are second homes. So, um, you know, those people have been through the ropes as far as buying and selling. Uh, they're, more com- yeah, they're more confident, you know, in the process. So yeah, that's probably that probably plays more into it than anything else. And, of course, you have, you know, anybody buying a first-time home, there's a lot of speculation, you know, there's a lot of questions. I know when I bought my first home, you know, I, you, know you worry about every little thing. And, and I think I don't think that's really changed. Um, you know, over the last uh, millennial, whatever you call it, uh, from you know, baby boomers' um, population to the millennials now, so I don't think I don't think that dynamic's really changed much. But I think it's got probably has more to do with the older generation of buying second homes, and they've been through the ropes before. Yeah, 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 yeah. For, for, for Francisco, I, I'm I'm wondering. Um, we, we've been talking for the last over a year since we've been doing this podcast and talking about people buying homes, rushing in because they wanted it because of the pandemic and not knowing really what their property taxes were going to be, what their insurance was going to be, what the actual cost of owning a home is going to be, especially in a place from like South Florida, especially if you're coming from California, you're coming from New York, 
all of a sudden you get down here, they haven't even been effectively potentially through a hurricane season, if you will. Um, is this par for the course? People get in and they say, oh, shit, uh, I paid too much and I got the wrong location. Or, or do you think there's something different going on here at this time versus previous examples of home buyers uh, purchasing in uh, not only the United States, but in South Florida? Yeah, yeah, I don't think it's any different. I mean, like, you know, I mean, I mean, I think anybody has, you know, goes through those, goes through those feelings when, you know, they make their first home purchase. Um, I think, you know, maybe it depends, like, you know, like if you're, if you got caught up in this frenzy and, you know, and you ended up, you know, and you, I mean, I think a lot of people, I mean, like, if you were down here trying to buy a home, you knew you were overpaying. Um, yeah. I mean, you can't really say that, you know, like, oh, you know, you know, like, I mean, it's just, it just seems to me like, you know, like, how can you complain about overpaying when you knew that that's what you were walking into? Um, yeah. You know, like, I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, I mean, and again, I mean, like, if you're looking at, I mean, if you're looking at it from the standpoint of, I'm like, I'm a, you know, like, are you moving from a renter's market to a to a home ownership market? Um, you know, maybe the, you know, the regret is, you know, like, oh, now I have to deal with, you know, the maintenance of the property and having to, <laughs> like, you know, the one thing I see people having regrets about is, like, you know, if they did overpay and then six months down the line, they find out they have to, you know, pay to redo the pipes or they have to, like, you know, replace the roof even though the roof had, you know, supposedly seven years of life left on it. Um, yeah. You know, those are, the, I guess, you know, when you when you start facing those issues, then I guess that's when you have regrets. Um, but, I mean, how can you have regrets when you're, like, you know, when you're, when the mortgage rates, you know, are, are the lowest, <laughs> you know, you know, they've ever been since, you know, since the, since post-recession. And, yeah. You know, uh, and, you know, I mean, again, I mean, like, if you're, I mean, the only reason I would think you'd have some sort of regret is if you if you somehow ended up paying, you know, maybe like twenty, thirty thousand dollars over like sticker price. But I don't think that's what's happening here. Um, but you know, it's millennials. You know, I mean, like, I mean, aren't they the generation that always find something to complain about? <laughs> All right. Um, next next story, uh, Francisco. We're going to go to you because you wrote it. So let me read the headline. <laughs> Subhead, first couple graphs, and then anything you can share with us about this piece because it's um, it's pretty interesting. It's definitely interesting. So again, it's coming out of the real deal. Headline says: High Miami Beach bans unwelcome hotel guests from using amenities, according to a lawsuit. Subhead: After getting kicked out over a bill dispute, Sarah Lazlo Lazo returned to the Ritzy Condo Hotel under a six-month lease with a private unit owner. Now here we go in terms of the uh, story. The Satai Miami Beach can't kick out Sarah Lazlo. But the luxury condo hotel's ownership is making a Los Angeles woman stay there an unpleasant one. Laszlo, who currently has a short-term lease for a privately owned unit in one of the Satai's upper floors, is banned from the property's pool, the bars, the restaurants, and from using any of the amenities. According to court documents and ongoing lawsuit in uh, Miami-Dade Circuit Court, the hotel portion of the Satai, including the 90-room Art Deco, Dempsey Vanderbilt Hotel at 2001 Collins Avenue and some units in an adjoining 164-unit residential tower at 101 20th Street are owned by the Nakash family uh, that built the Jordache Sheen's fashion empire. Um, Francisco, what, what more can you tell us about, um, uh, about what's exactly going on? How does somebody lease a unit and then, lo and behold, they're basically banned from doing anything except being inside their unit, walking through the lobby, and using the elevator? 
Well, in this situation, you have the the hotel unit owner, the Satai Hotel acquisition, uh, in the role of the condo association. Um, so, you know, they can set the rules and regulations and decide, uh, at least in their attorney's opinion, uh, as to, you know, who can use the who can use you know the pool the the restaurant the garage and um in this case they like you know since they can't really interfere with a private transaction between uh the owner of a private unit and and um and Ms. Lazo, uh they went ahead and just decided well you know what i mean she's here but she's not going to be able to use anything you know any of the any of the fun stuff here in in this luxurious property, um, and then you know her her counterclaim is that the uh, hotel unit owner uh, is in violation of state law uh, because these are all like you know things that are supposed to be set by the condo association, not the hotel unit owner. So it's um you know it's a it's it's an interesting I guess you know, legal dispute um, that gets to the heart of like, you know, you know, what associations can do and when they're, what associations can do and what hotel unit owners can do when you're in a situation like this, which is a condo hotel um, where you have, um, you know, you also have, you also have, you know, private owners uh, in the building. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, John, I want to get your comments, but let me just read another graph or two from um, Francisco's piece. It says that Lazo filed a counterclaim on April 7th, asserting that Satai's owners do not have the authority to prohibit hotel guests from utilizing the property's common elements, just like Francisco said. It says Lazo alleges that the Satai removed her from the property due to a personal dispute she had with the condo hotel's general manager, Alex Fuhrer, with whom she had an intimate relationship. In an amended complaint, Satai Hotel Acquisitions accused Lazo of being, in quotes, dressed inappropriately by appearing in a hotel restaurant in a transparent blouse, making her breasts clearly visible, end quote, and successfully, quote, pursued a sexual relationship, end quote, with Fuhrer, who declined the comment. Um, John, I don't know if you want to comment about their relationship, but that to me sounds like a, uh, uh, you know, uh, a nasty cat fight or a fight going on uh, between uh, two parties who were in a relationship. And uh, this person is showing up at the other person's place of employment. Um, is that really what this bill boils down to, or do you think there's something more here? I, actually, two things like two things sort of come to mind on on this story. This great story. The first thing is, I mean, when I was a reporter uh, writing about development during the last boom during the 2005-2006, um, these monstrosities, condo hotels, um, started appearing, and, and they, they just don't make any sense. And the collapse of the housing market and the collapse of the real estate market from 2008 to 2010, I thought would end this monstrosity, the condo hotel. It just doesn't make any sense because – it just they're just two different animals and they're trying to put them together and i thought we'll never see another condo hotel ever because they're complete disasters and here we are seeing brand new condo hotels in development and appearing and this is exactly the kind of stuff that is just it just doesn't make any sense um i mean they're just they just don't work 
And this is just a prime example of the kind of like legal entanglements that owners and hotel unit owners and condo owners face. It's just a it's a complete mess. And then the other the other thing, um, uh, I mean, you know, the other thing, too, is how does it get to the point of a lawsuit that Francisco can write about it? And you get all this just negative publicity. I mean, I don't even understand. <laughs> How did it get to this point? Like, like that, that everybody's dirty laundry, you know, from this like fancy schmancy hotel on Miami Beach gets aired, you know, in public like this. How did it get to this point? Could they not like settle it quietly out of court? I mean, it's crazy. I don't I just don't understand how how it gets to this point where it's public and now Francisco writes about it, it's all over the internet and they have this horrible nightmare publicity, you know. I mean it's just crazy. I don't understand it. <laughs> that's that's Love all I have it. to Love say it. about Love that. <laughs> Understood. I mean, for for an area that really pushes, um, uh, you know, risque types of lifestyle, I can't. I don't see why it's such a big deal to have someone uh, doing that personally. Personally, so it, it seems like they're kind of, you know, they're playing both sides of it. You know, you you push the sex appeal of uh, Miami Beach and South Beach, and at the same time, you don't want something like that going on in the uh, hotel. But you know. We'll, we'll, we'll let the judge decide. Uh, story number six is coming out of the NBC. Let's stick with Jean. Uh, Jean, the headline is home builder confidence is high, but rising cost of materials present major risk. Uh, first three key points. Builder sentiment in the single-family housing market, it was unchanged at 83 in May. Point number two, sales expectation in the next six months rose one point to 81. And point number three, and it's a quote from an economist, that says some builders are slowing sales to manage their own supply chains, which means growing affordability challenges for a, a market in critical need of more inventory. First couple of graphs, Sean, and then I'll ask you to comment. This, this strong buyer demand is keeping home, builder, home builders confident, but rising costs of construction materials are weighing on housing affordability. Builder sentiment in the single-family house market was unchanged in at 83 in May, according to the NAHB, Wells Fargo Housing Market Index. Anything above 50 is considered positive sentiment. The index has plummeted, had plummeted to 37 last May as the pandemic lockdown hit and the housing market shut down. It then rebounded dramatically in June and July as consumers rushed out to buy suburban homes, seeking more space for working and schooling uh, from home. Builders now say they continue to see steady streams of buyers, due in large part to extreme shortage of existing homes for sale. Continued low mortgage rates are helping some with affordability, but with prices rising fast, purchasing power is weakening. John, what, what, what do we make of this? This is a push-pull. Um, you know, granted, everybody wants a house, but the prices are going up, so not everybody can necessarily afford it. What, what, what do we make of this? Well, uh, you know, it's... Um... <sighs> People are people are acting crazy. They're they're you know they're um, upbidding each other on existing homes, and there's not enough inventory. And they're they're battling, you know, to get a contract with the home builders. And the home builders, I mean, they're overwhelmed. But you know, they can name their price. And of course, in their contracts, I'm sure they have clauses uh, for you know. Uh, price of lumber and copper and all the things that go into building a house. I mean, I think they're, they're pretty well protected. Um, so at this point, it's a matter of, of, of sort of managing the supply and the pipeline of homes. But I mean, you know, from a profitability standpoint, I mean, uh, you know, home builders are doing just fine. I, uh, I'm not concerned about the home builders, but I am, I am concerned about the affordability issue. I mean, pretty much, um, <laughs> I mean, for, moderate 
you know, middle income people, I mean, even even for them, it's like getting out of control. So, I mean, you know, the thing is, is that, um, you know, until until this sort of um, fear of missing out is, uh, you know, sort of tapers off, um, I think the home builders have the upper hand. Which makes sense. Makes all sense in the world. Mr. Fackle, let me read a quote, and then I'm going to ask you to comment. Um, but before I do, let me just point out, you shared with us previously that you were caught in one of these situations where you were trying to buy during the last boom, and you would go to it. You'd show up at a, at, a, at a showing, an open house, and the listing broker would have written contracts sitting on uh, the table or the desk putting the yep. pressure on, and you get caught up. You got caught up in FOMO. You didn't know what FOMO was for missing out at the time, but you got caught up with the anxiety. So I want to get you to comment, but let me first read this quote, and then I'll ask you to comment. Again, it's coming from the TNBC story. So the quote is, it comes from Chuck Fowler, National Association of Home Builders chairman and a home builder from Tampa, Florida. The quote is, first-time and first-generation home buyers are particularly at risk of losing a purchase due to cost hikes associated with increasingly scarce material availability. Now, now, Mr. Fackler, um, the people are, at, uh, you know, they're, they're fearful they're not going to get a price. The developers are claiming that the prices have to go up because we can't get our hands on, on materials. Where's the truth? Is it somewhere in the middle or is this a, an attempt simply because it's a hot market and everybody's got a bad case of FOMO where these developers are going to try to increase their profit margin um, as well as the brokers who are trying to peddle this product? What, what say you as somebody who lived through this and competed in this uh, you know, 12 to 14 years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's something that's unforgettable when you go through those bidding wars um, and you, you show up for a place and it's, you know, they're trying to jack you up uh, literally from place to place. But, you know, what I found interesting about the story, though, was, um, you know, I always thought that the reason why these developments are being proposed and they're being proposed, you know, a long way out, a year or two years in the distance, was because I thought that developers were trying to time the market uh, related to the pandemic and uh, just waiting to see, you know, what, for this thing to blow over and then to, you know, uh, eventually start to, you know, break ground and get these developments built. But um, I, I think it's more that they're really trying to um, guesstimate the uh, building costs because they've become so prohibited now um, that maybe that's the reason why they're, stretching out the um, development time over the, um, you know, from a year to two years, maybe even longer, is because they need to manage the cost. And this, they found a way to manage the cost because they, they saw these building costs, the increases coming down the road. So maybe it's got more to do with them managing the cost than it does with managing the pandemic. I don't know. I could be wrong, but it just, just struck me that that might be the, uh, the case. Interesting. So what you're saying then is, you know, the developers are good and they're not trying to jack up their profit margin on these right. um, these first time uh, buyers, these millennials who have all the regret that we talked about in some yeah. of the previous uh, one of the previous articles. OK, interesting. Interesting. OK, guys, let's go ahead. We'll take a break. On the other side break, I'm going to ask the panel to go ahead and make a prediction. This is Peter Zalewski of the Condo Vultures podcast. Back in 1995, I got my real estate license, but I didn't practice for a number of years simply because I was writing about real estate as a journalist. 2006, I broke out and I launched a company called Condo Vultures. The idea was to try to use information, uh, data, and know-how to try to get the best deals on behalf of buyers. So if you are a buyer and you're looking for a deal, you're looking to try to understand the condo market in the Tri-County, South Florida area, myself or my team are here to help you to get a hold of us. Please call us at 305-865-5859, 305-865-5859, or 
visit our website, condovulturesrealty.com. Welcome back to the Reporters Roundtable. I'm Peter Zalewski. This is the segment where I ask the panelists to go ahead and make a prediction. Um, I'm going to start off with John Fackler. I will then go to Jean Gruss. And then finally, I'm going to ask Francisco to make a prediction. Mr. Fackler, um, what do you sense is coming down the pike? Give us a prediction. What should the listener uh, be on the lookout for? Yeah, this is a, kind of a gut feeling here. Um, as a lot of people have known from recent news stories, a lot of the um, – uh, at least probably a dozen of the uh, states that are run by Republican governors are putting the kibosh on the federal unemployment plan. Um, and um, my prediction is that although we, uh, our, our governor DeSantis, also a Republican, has not done so yet, I believe he will be pressured into, by the other Republicans into also putting uh, the kibosh on the federal unemployment program, uh, which is going to hurt a lot of um, independent contractors because – you know, this will, they won't be able to get the state benefits. So once they don't get the federal benefits, they won't be able to get the state benefits. Um, and I believe that this move by DeSantis will happen at the end of the month or the first week of uh, June. Interesting. Interesting. Well, there's a lot of people out there hoping that you're wrong. Um, and you yeah. do have a tendency to not necessarily call it right. So maybe uh, those people are listening. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, John, what, what about you? What do you see coming out of Mike? Well, I've been reading lately about a lot of office buildings that are, that are trading. Um, a, lot of, um, a lot of investors have come down to South Florida in recent months, and they've snapped up office buildings at uh, significant discounts. Um, these are empty office buildings, emptied uh, post-pandemic. And I think they're betting on the fact that people are going to go back to the office and fill, fill those offices again um, with with existing tenants, but also um, some new tenants, finance companies, and maybe even some tech companies that are coming down here. And I, I think we're going to see a return to the office, but the investors, um, I think, have, go- have grown a lot more confident. And it's, it's really been pretty interesting to see that, like, um, especially the institutional investors that are looking for opportunities are able to snap up some of these office buildings where maybe the owners have been struggling because over the past year, um, you know, the, the tenants have not been paying rent. So we're starting to see some of that happen. And actually, that's a pretty good sign because it's, uh, you know, that's what needs to happen in a recovery. Somebody needs to come in and, and, and redevelop the building and maybe improve it, put in some better air quality issues, some air quality things, maybe, uh, you know, promise the new tenants uh, uh, some extra filters and, and that it's safe to come back. And um, I, I think we're going to see uh, a lot more of that. Wow, that that's a sh- if you're right on that one, John. That's going to be. Uh, uh, I don't think anyone would have saw that coming down the pipe. Um, Francisco, what uh, what say you? All right, I'm going to do a lighthearted prediction, guys, and nice. and it's going to be the Miami Heat in six over the Milwaukee Bucks. Nice. <laughs> so we're we're talking about the Miami Heat basketball uh, team, which just made the playoffs, and they're likely to face the Milwaukee Bucks in the first round of the playoffs. So you think the Heat is going to beat the Bucks just like they did last year on their run towards the finals? Yeah, and but you know, but this time it's going to take six games instead of five. Wow! Hey, man, I hope you're right, and you got a record of being right. So that's interesting. Um. My prediction, I'm going to stick with my prediction from last week, but I'm going to vary it just a little bit, just tweak it. So my prediction last week that was Miami would be the fraud capital of the uh, food delivery business 
um, based on a report that I read, and that was about all these fake restaurants that were supposedly popping up. And then individuals were using Uber Eats and other apps to order food. Lo and behold, the food would never come. The money would be taken. Uh, uh, calls would be made in this case. It was made to Uber Eats, and Uber Eats told the person who ordered the food who never got the food but paid to go ahead and contact the restaurant, but the woman could never find the restaurant because it never actually existed. So that was my prediction last week. Here's my new prediction. My new prediction, sticking in that same genre, if you will, of fraud capital, I predict Miami will be the rental fraud capital of the United States. Now, where is this coming from? This is coming from a story that comes out of NBC6 South Florida. Just read you a couple graphs. Um, Hialeah police arrest, in quotes, mastermind behind rental scheme scam. Rental scheme scam. Hialeah police say Kenya Robles, 38, is the mastermind behind a rental scheme that lasted from October of 2020 to May of 2021. That was until they busted her 30, uh, Thursday morning on 70 counts. You're charged with organized fraud, depositing worthless checks, unlawful use of communications device, theft from Eldorex, said the presiding judge Robles' first court appearance in Miami-Dade County. Now, just to kind of cut through it, here's what she did. Police have found 19 victims and believe she scammed about 20 grand from them. NB66 reached out to the attorney representing her and they had no comments. In quotes, it says, she reached out to them and said, hey, pay me through Zelle. Give me 1000 2000 3000 via Zelle. And then on Monday or whatever day she coordinated with them to move in such and such apartment. Well, when the victim arrived at the apartment, lo and behold, they discovered the apartments were actually occupied with legitimate victims inside. Um, so my prediction is that as this stuff plays out, we are also going to be the fraud capital of the rental scam market, just like we are with uh, various healthcare aspects, insurance aspects, and uh, most recently, the food delivery business. So uh, we'll take a commercial break. On the other side break, we're going to get into the comments. This is Peter Zaluski of the Condo Vultures podcast. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. And I wanted to alert you that if you have a property that you're looking to sell in the Tri-County, South Florida area, I would encourage you to reach out to Jenny Hortus, a licensed real estate broker with CVRRealty.com. She's my partner. She's been in the business for uh, north of 15 years. More importantly, she knows the market. She knows how to get a deal done. And she also realizes that it's more important to get a price that you can accept and sell the property rather than to hold firm on some price that's never going to be achieved and ultimately languish on the market. So if you're looking to do a deal that you want a skilled expert who can help you sell a property, reach out to Jenny Hortis at 305-865-5859, 305-865-5859, or visit her website, cvrrealty.com. Welcome back. I'm Peter Zalewski. This is the, the time when you, the listener, you get the sound off on uh, anything maybe that uh, we've said, we've done in terms of our podcast. So if you want to send a comment to us, a compliment, a complaint, ask a question, make a statement, please send a um, comment to inquire at condovultures.com, I-N-Q-U-I-R-Y, at condovultures.com. John Fackler, uh, we, we got a comment. Why don't you uh, tell, who is, tell us who it's from and what it has to say. Okay. Uh, this comment comes from uh, Ilya who says he's running clueless on the Treasure Coast. So, uh, as we know, okay. from the Treasure Coast. He uh, has a, uh, two comments. First, uh, regarding your podcast with uh, Chris Overlay. thought it was a good podcast. He listened to it twice. Says things are moving in the uh, are moving in the advertising world, that's for sure. Um, he has a little side note about dudes swinging signs. <laughs> it cost the minimum wage. They're perfectly fine and help direct local traffic when needed. Uh, he feels it's useful for businesses in specific areas. He thought your questions were good. Uh, they sound, 
and he says that it sounds like you were shopping for the services yourself. If you could tell our audience, <laughs> if you could tell so, our audience a little bit about the podcast, too. Uh, I, I will, yeah. I, on Friday, our real estate players profile, I did a one-on-one conversation. I had a one-on-one conversation with a gentleman who runs a digital marketing company, and he says during it, uh, during the podcast, his name is Chris Overlay. His name of the company is Genius Digital Marketing. They're based out of Dallas, uh, Texas. He says during it, uh, a lot of people, um, they get very resistant when they hear digital marketing. And many of them uh, have paid money and they didn't get anything back in return. This guy's kind of a straight shooter. And um, we basically walked through marketing. And the idea was to basically um, talk to uh, uh, or discuss what works, what doesn't work. So we went item by item or strategy by strategy. Everything from, from in Miami, uh, some guy dressed up in a chicken outfit, uh, flipping a sign. To get a bunch of strippers in an extended Hummer with the name of the strip joint painted on the side, driving around to see what would actually drive business. Uh, then we we took it to social media, like which social media platform could work the best based on if you are a realtor trying to peddle product, you're a lender, you are a title company, any and all of that type of stuff. So anybody who has their own business or is trying to market something. Uh, it's basically a one-hour conversation with somebody who specializes in this, uh, does everything like AdWords and things like that, where he can basically he basically was giving me straight talk about what was really going on. And in terms of Ilya, was I shopping for those types of services? Well, yeah, I was very, I'm, you know, I'm not confused, but I'm just curious. I see a bunch of different marketing going on, and you never know what really works and what doesn't. For instance, one of the things I asked um, Chris Overlay from Genius Digital Marketing, I asked him, what about all those realtors who go ahead, they buy postcards, they put a sale that they've uh, done on it, then they mail it to everybody in a building or in a neighborhood. Does that stuff actually work? So we get into some of that. So it's really point by point by point. And that's, I think, why Ilya listened to it two times because, you know, there's a lot of great information. And Chris, uh, pretty much a straight shooter um, uh, in laying things out. So I'd encourage anybody who has their own business and they're in the digital marketing, uh, things like that, you should go ahead and uh, check out that podcast, which appeared last Friday, which it would have been uh, May the 14th. So, John, what else do you have to say? And then that's uh, podcast number 138, right, Peter, just for people? Uh, uh, 138, correct. Correct. Okay. Um, Illy also made a comment about our roundtable, um, and he said uh, he didn't see, hear a single word from me for the first 45 minutes. He was worried about me as far as the birds attacking me. What's happening? <laughs> so I, I could I could assure uh, Ilya that the birds were uh, not attacking. It's just the way the uh, program went. He... Um, also made a comment about Miami, the Tech Hub for 2050, which goes along to what we talked about earlier in the program today. Um, he feels that uh, in order to sort of get more incentives, that he thinks perhaps, because um, uh, we don't have a lot of resources in the area, perhaps the local government needs to step in and provide additional incentives uh, to get more, more folks in, more uh, commercial folks in, um, uh, businesses, I should say. He feels also, but unfortunately, by the 2050, we're going to still we're going to we're going to be underwater one way or another. Wink, wink. So. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Ilya. And again, if anybody wants to send a comment, please. Uh, we we discuss them every Wednesday during the reporters' roundtable. So, I want to thank Francisco Alvarado. He's been a journalist for 20 years. You'll see his work in the Real Deal, the Daily Beast, and other publications. Any parting thoughts, Francisco? You want to share with the listener? No. Um. I'm all out of thoughts this one this time around. <laughs> nice, nice, nice. And I want to thank John Groose. John has his own uh, public relations and marketing firm called Groose Communication. John, any parting thoughts uh, from you? No, nah, it's great. It's been a great show. Thanks, thanks, Peter. Fantastic. And then finally, Mr. Fackler, 
You uh, used to cover white collar crime and publicly traded companies off the business journal. Now you do public relations and marketing related to the business of health and wellness. Um, do you have any final thoughts, Mr. Peckler? <laughs> health and wellness business. Um, no, actually, I just thought it was a very informative program. As, as usual, uh, when we have up these podcasts, I always learn something new. So I appreciate that. Fantastic, fantastic. And thank you. And thanks uh, you to the listener. I'm Peter Zalewski. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, if you're not a subscriber, please go ahead and do so. If you're listening to the podcast, you like what we're doing, leave us a rating and a comment. The more ratings and comments we get, the more likely we are to spread our message and ultimately move towards a mission, uh, accomplishing our mission, which is bringing straight talk to an overhyped real estate market. And then finally, uh, a reminder, if you want to send us a comment that we'll read on the air during the Reporters Roundtable, send it to inquiry at condovultures.com, I-N-Q-U-I-R-Y, at condovultures.com. Until next time, hope everybody uh, gets ready to enjoy a, um, a healthy safe uh, summer with the pandemic looking to be behind us, fingers crossed. So until next time, ciao, ciao. If you're listening to this podcast, think about who else is. If you want to reach that crowd, which tends to be investors, buyers, developers, lenders, why not advertise on the Common Cultures podcast? To do so, give us a call at the office, 305-865-5859, 305-865-5859. Or send an email to inquiry at condovultures.com. I-N-Q-U-I-R-Y at condovultures.com. <laughs>